the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. That's The Rich Man and Lazarus, and you can find it online at ReachingYourHeart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here's Pastor Mike with the conclusion to The Rich Man and Lazarus. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Ephesians 3.8, he says, But to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, through Christ, those who are poor can become rich. But it is implied in the writings of Paul that those who were rich became poor because they rejected Christ. Because of Jesus and the gospel, the Gentiles are poor no more. Dear heart, if you have the word of God, if you have the gospel of Jesus, if you have Christ in your life, if your bank account goes through the floor, if your retirement has been pushed away, if you lose your home, if you lose your job, you are not poor because you are prince and princess of the Lord, and you are rich in Jesus. Luke 16, 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Now that's the word the NIV says in hell, but that cannot be if you do a good word study in the word Hades. I think the King James may use the same expression. But it is not that. In Hades, that's the Greek which means the grave, the place where you cannot see. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now that would have shocked someone who knew the Scripture teaching here. So why is Christ saying he lifted up his eyes in the place which means you cannot see? The bosom of Abraham represents the comfort the Pharisaical Jew enjoyed in death because he was a child of Abraham. Around the time of Christ, the idea of the bosom of Abraham is a new and emerging idea found in the ancient papyrus materials. It arises between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New during the period we call the Hellenistic Age, the influx of Greek thought and tradition into Judaism. In the intertestament book of 4th Maccabees 13:17, which is found in the Apocrypha, it's not part of our scriptures, but it describes some of the history of the time of following Alexander the Great and during Alexander and so on. The bosom of Abraham is also described as the place of martyrs. I'm quoting, After our death, the martyrs are speaking. In this fashion, Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth will receive us, and all our fathers will praise us. Between the last book of the Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus in the New Testament, the Greeks invaded Palestine and their ideas came with them. In the Greek religion, there is fire in the underworld of Hades for those who deserve it. I mean, they looked at a volcano and they thought that went way down deep. And since Hades is the underworld, you go down, you get punished if you're wicked with that fire that's down there. 
the Jews in the intertestament period began to adopt this Greek idea and they began to integrate it into Hebrew thought. For example, in the Apocalypse of Zephaniah written between the Old and New Testaments, the Jewish writer describes a river of death just like the river Styx in Greek mythology. And just like the Greek myth, the boat has a ferryman that carries the dead over the river of death, transporting the dead over the river to Hades. In the Jewish equivalent of Greek mythology, the person in charge of the boat is not Sharon, or Charon, however you say that. The person in charge of the boat is an angel. So an angel transports someone to Hades. In the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, again, this is not a biblical work. It's a Hellenized piece of literature in what you call Hellenistic Judaistic faiths. In the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, you get to the bosom of Abraham when the angel takes you in the boat over the river to the other side. And I'm going to read it. It says, You have escaped from the abyss in Hades. Now you will cross over the crossing place to all the righteous ones, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Elijah, and David. They believed they were down there in the underworld somewhere. Christians come along, they take this idea, and they think it's heaven. This is the Greek notion of death when you cross the river Styx in the underworld. The Pharisees adopted this idea of the afterlife even though they believed in a resurrection from the dead. And so they took the Greek idea and Scripture and they tried to live with both. So Jesus in the parable draws on this Greek idea of the afterlife in a ridiculous kind of way to make his point while at the same time making fun of the Pharisees' view of death. He says, the angels carried Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham. That's not supposed to happen in the way the Jews thought. It was an angel who carried a believer over the river Styx to their final destination. And in the parable, the rich man was simply buried, kind of matter-of-factly dumped into Hades as the ground covered him up. A reversal of fortunes. Remember, Hades is the Greek word for the Hebrew sheol that means the grave, the place that you cannot see anything in. And so when he lifts up his eyes, it shocks them all. No angel transport for the rich man in the parable. No, he just gets dumped with his whole body in the hole called Hades. Certain Jewish rabbis who don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, who don't see that at all, they understood very clearly what Jesus was doing here. The German rabbi Abraham Geiger, who lived in the 19th century, I'm quoting, suggested the parable of Lazarus in Luke 16 preserved a Jewish legend and that Lazarus represented Abraham's servant, Eliezer. I mean, they could get the pictures because they read the Old Testament. They knew that this parable was being given in a context even though they rejected Jesus. He got it right for the most part. Hades is the Greek word for the grave. It does not represent a hell with fire because the Bible teaches that hell, that is the fire, will destroy Hades. Hades can't survive the fire. The New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology, Volume 2, page 206, describes the origin and meaning of the word Hades. I just want to read it to you. It says it comes from Edain, to see, with the negative prefix a, 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 and so it means the invisible, the not seen implied. In the Septuagint, the LXX, Greek Old Testament, Hades occurs more than 100 times in the majority of instances to translate the Hebrew word sheol, as we've learned, which means the grave, the underworld which receives all the dead. That means righteous and unrighteous. It is the land of darkness. Now that's what the word means. Hades is not a place for the wicked. 
Hades is a place for everybody until the resurrection. That's what this is saying. Hades is the land of darkness with no light. Hades here represents the transition from light to darkness. Now, it's worthy of mention that the Jews believed the bosom of Abraham was nothing but an extension of Hades, so to speak. You still cross the river Styx to get there, which implies the underworld. Judaism, which feasted daily on the rich banquet of God's word and the covenants eventually descended into a state of utter darkness. That's what the parable is saying. Hades came to represent the hidden land with no light in it, spiritually speaking. The man who is rich with God's word ends up in a place where there is no light, where God's word is gone. Hades here represents the death of the Jewish nation. It's transition from its glorious phase of life to a phase in which it dies and then it has an afterlife which is far different than its previous glory. In the parable, death is symbolic of the transition of the two great people groups represented by the rich man and Lazarus. In the parable, the death of the rich man represents the transition of Judaism from a favored religion to one that is a suffering religion to a religion where its holy city is burned with fire, symbolized by the fire, to a religion historically that has no national existence because it has died as a nation. And so it lives in exactly the opposite state in an afterlife than it did in its previous glory. And the death of Lazarus here represents the transition of the Gentiles from a wretched status of uncleanness and sickness to a blessed status after the gospel was preached to them where they are the children of Abraham, where they are in the bosom of Abraham, where by faith they belong to Abraham. And so the two great peoples of the earth change places in the parable. The reference to torment in Luke 16.23 is no doubt an allusion from Isaiah the prophet who describes Israel's rejection of God in the same way Jesus describes the rich man in torment. Isaiah 50 verse 11, I believe, is a prophecy that describes the destruction of Jerusalem fire. The Bible says, Behold all you who kindle a fire, who set brands alight. In other words, if you want to create your own light and reject God's word, look, this is what's going to happen to you. He's speaking to the chosen people. Walk by the light of your fire and by the brands which you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment, which means you will go to the grave in torment. And that's the word Jesus uses for the rich man. Christ taught in this allegorical parable that the nation of Israel that was once a favored nation with a rich table of spiritual food would lose it all. They would simply lose it all. That nation would die and it would descend into darkness. And he draws from the pharisaical notion of death to say that it would have an afterlife not as a nation. It would have an afterlife with historical suffering and torment because it had rejected its calling as the royal nation of God. It would suffer fire as Roman legions surrounded it and destroyed the city. The bosom of Abraham is the place in death envisioned by the Jews that would provide comfort until the resurrection. It's not a biblical idea. And so Christ is using this to illustrate that there would be no comfort after the destruction of Jerusalem. Paradoxically, in the parable, the Gentiles are the ones who enjoy the comfort of Abraham because they have the faith of Abraham. In the parable, the rich man symbolizing Judah, the people of Judaism, saw Abraham's bosom afar off and they had boasted of being in the bosom of Abraham. In the book of Revelation, a millennium separates the two resurrections of the just and the wicked in Revelation 20. But let's be frank here. Since the destruction of Jerusalem, since the cross, there has been enmity that has separated the two religions, that has made it hard to reach in to one and the other. And Christ predicted that state of enmity. 
Those who have faith belong to Abraham and children of Abraham who don't believe are separated from the blessing of Abraham. Now Paul is very clear. Someone can be grafted in by faith. There is no desire to keep the promised people of God out of the blessing of Abraham. No, God loves them dearly. Luke 16, 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You see, the real hope here is perceived to be, in fact, the people who weren't God's people. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. The afterlife of Judaism after the cross, after the destruction of Jerusalem, was historical suffering. The city was burned, and this symbol had a living fulfillment. And through one era after another, the precious people of Judaism have suffered one torment after another, and the Holocaust is the latest example. And I pray to the Lord that no nation in the Middle East will be able to launch a nuclear-tipped missile into the Holy Land. I don't think the chosen ancient people of God need to suffer like this, but the parable predicted it. And the afterlife of the poor old Gentiles who suffered for centuries without the gospel, who were poor, who had sores, they became the favored people in the era of gospel blessing because they were open to the scriptures, they were open to the word of Christ, and they believed. The death of Jesus brought the death of the old status of each group. And so in a way, both groups died and were reborn on different sides and different positions. The parable teaches that there was a reversal for Judaism and the Gentiles that turned the past on its head. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. That's a perfect description of the difficulty that still stands for reaching across the gulf that still divides these two great people groups. In verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The nation of Israel at the time of Christ was essentially derived from the tribe of Judah. There were others there, but it it was essentially thought of as an extension of the tribe of Judah. The last king of Judah had served before the Babylonian captivity, and that was the idea. When we speak of Israel, we speak of Judaism. In verse 28, the rich man says that he had five brothers that need to be warned. Now, who are they? Why is the number five significant? It's no accident that Judah had five sons. So the five brothers in the parable is, is pointing to those five sons of Judah. In Genesis 46, 12, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. It's also worthy of mention that Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, who had Christ crucified, had five sons, according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. The family of Annas openly rejected Jesus and had him crucified. I mean, so the imagery is loaded. Abraham's answer is just what the Jewish nation needed to hear in the parable. Verse 29, but Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus said in John 5, 47, that if you don't believe Moses, you won't believe me either. This indicates what was on the table. It was Moses and the prophets that he had feasted on, but they didn't believe. 
And so the table was sufficient to keep them right with God, but they feasted themselves and they left everyone else out. Jesus said in John 5, 47, that if you don't believe Moses, you won't believe me either. The rich man says they'll believe if someone is resurrected. Miracles will make them believe. They'll believe if someone is raised from the dead. Signs will make them stir deep inside. Then they will hear. Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend, in John 11, and they rejected Jesus anyway. And Christ was raised as the ultimate proof on Sunday morning for the whole world. And the New Testament records that the leaders of that nation covered up the evidence of the resurrection to keep their power over the people. The parable ends with the appeal to believe the Scriptures instead of tradition. In Luke 19, the fate of the nation of Israel was sealed and the era of suffering began after the death of the nation of Israel. There was nothing to glory for any Christian in this tragedy. Israel's afterlife of suffering and fire is a tragedy for us all. And I believe we should protect the nation of Israel from this kind of thing. I'm not for those who would stamp out and remove that nation from the face of earth. I hope that all the peoples of the Middle East can get along, come together, and find peace. But it won't happen, we know, in this world. It will happen in the world to come. The Romans would come and destroy the city that had feasted on God's word, but did nothing with his word to save the lost Gentiles of the world. The same fate can come to my church and yours. It can come to any person, any institution, any family in the Christian world that does not care about sharing the God and Christ with a dying world, with their neighborhood. As Christ approached Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke, He wept over the holy city because it had refused to share its rich table with the hungry and the dying world, symbolized by Lazarus who sat at the gate and longed for the crumbs of God's Word to fall from the table of a nation that was a kingdom of priests before God. In Luke 19, 42-44, Christ approaches the city and He weeps over the city as the parable becomes reality. He says, would that even today you knew the things that came for peace, that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. That means they will go to Hades, all right, where you cannot see. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank upon you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. By faith, many of the Gentiles became children of Abraham. And paradoxically, many of the children of Abraham who rejected God's word and refused to believe in Christ lost their privileged status and became a people of suffering. But there were a few, a remnant of apostles and others who were faithful to Abraham and to the principles of God's word that established the Christian church. The afterlife for the Jewish nation was fire and anguish in the parable. Jesus, in the form of a parable, taught that the Jews and the Gentiles would switch places after the cross. The two great systems would die and be reborn and transformed. And it would be a great reversal unthought of in history. The son of Abraham was favored in his status with Abraham, was plunged into spiritual darkness and suffering. And the one that was seeking crumbs at the gate found access to the bosom of Abraham. In Luke 16, 26, there's a great chasm that separates the rich man and Lazarus. The great chasm is no doubt the Jordan Valley that separated the promised land from the land of the Gentiles. On the west side was the promised land that Moses saw from Mount Nebo when he died. He never entered the promised land. When Joshua crossed the chasm, he entered the land promised to Abraham. Because he broke faith with God in Numbers 20, Moses died on the other side of the chasm. 
The Jordan River, which flowed in the middle of the rift down to the Dead Sea, was a symbol of death to the ancient Jewish people. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. And going down to Sheol was most likely an allusion to the Jordan that goes down slowly to the Dead Sea. You go down to your ancestors. You descend to death. The main point of the parable is clear for us today. The judgment of God will reverse the fortunes of those who were rich, those who think they're rich with the resources of God, and they do nothing for their world with the Word of God. If that's your religious position, you're going to find yourself somewhere else than you thought you would be. A nation or church, and that can mean our church, that enjoys divine favor can be plunged into spiritual darkness and death and even suffering, though it had formerly feasted the rich spiritual table of God's Word. And the parable also teaches that the poor who seek God will find Him in the end. And the rich who feast on God's Word but don't care about others, just kind of keep it to themselves and their little classes and groups, but don't reach out, they'll lose everything in the end. Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5 that all died at the cross. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The nation of Israel lost its favored status in the death of Christ because it rejected the warnings of the Scriptures that pointed to Jesus, who is the life. On the other hand, the Gentiles came into a state of favor and grace as children of Abraham because they received Jesus by faith and they believed in the resurrection. And any son of Abraham, ethnic son of Abraham who believes in Jesus, who says, Yeshua HaMashiach, who confesses Christ as the Messiah, as a favored son of Abraham again, he's grafted in through Jesus, the one true Israelite. There is no intention to exclude in this parable. It's simply the statement of fact as to what would transpire because of both groups' reaction to the gospel. We face the same choice today in a way, don't we? Tradition without traction or God's word in action. That's the choice. Evangelism or a self-serving substitute that only reaches inward and makes us feel good about us. Reaching Hearts International is more than just a name. It was chosen deliberately. The Lord led us to that name. It's a choice that we have made because God has led us in His Word not to focus on us. We have, by God's grace, not our power, established churches before we have one ourselves. Our vision was to have a lay seminary. We helped establish one before we have it ourselves. I mean, it's not about us. It's about the mission of God. We will have our church, dear heart. We will have our place, but we already have them all over the world. It's a choice we've made. It's the right choice if you want to live. Sharing the bread from a bountiful table with our brothers and sisters around the world will keep us alive, will keep our eyes open, will keep the life of our church ongoing, and we will not descend into the place of this ancient people that forgot all this. Jesus is the key. He's the life. Share him freely with your friends and neighbors. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who has given the Christian church an afterlife. It was dead, now it is alive. And the afterlife is life. And Father, we know that if we should forsake the Word of God, we should live on tradition that we can go to a spiritual world that is unseen and all the good that we have can be lost. Father, may we take this to heart, live the word by faith, live in obedience and repentance as we seek you and grow. 
But Father, may it not be about us. May it be about reaching hearts international. Reaching men and women, sons and daughters of the kingdom. And Father, bless everyone here with all of Jesus deep inside. With the living Christ, I pray. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If this message is ministered to you, remember there are many more just like it at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time and have been inspired by this sermon and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts. And you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount. These are urgent times and God has an urgent message. God's message in Revelation is one of warning and encouragement. And it's a personal appeal to all of mankind. It is his final message before sweeping changes occur across the globe. Events that will take place just prior to Christ's second coming. You see, God doesn't want his church to be surprised by the events that will take place. He wants his church ready for his return. We have a book titled God's Last Altar Call that will encourage you and help you understand what events must take place as found in the book of Revelation. We'll send you this book for a donation of any amount and pray that you will be encouraged to know that you can discern the events that must take place prior to his second coming. Please call at any time, 24-7-888-244-HOPE. And with a donation of any amount, we'll send the book right out to you entitled God's Last Altar Call. We pray that you will be lifted up by the biblical insights in this book and grow spiritually in your walk with Christ. Join us again next time for another edition of Reaching Your Heart. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.